Well, hello everyone and happy Easter to you. Uh, so one of my friends on Facebook, as you do, uh, posted up um, this post. He said, what are the things that we'll tell our grandkids about the pre-COVID, pre-coronavirus world? What are the things we'll tell our grandkids about the pre-COVID world? And uh, ask people to comment. These are some of the, the better comments that I've found. Things we'll tell our grandkids about the pre-COVID world. Number one, that there was a time when a lot of people didn't really wash their hands. How about this one? Number two, the pre-COVID world will tell our grandkids that we used to grasp each other's hands and shake it as a form of greeting. How about this third one? Things we'll tell our grandkids about the pre-COVID world, that Zoom was the sound of a Mazda commercial. And the last one, things we'll tell our grandkids about the pre-COVID world, we'll tell them that we used to spend hundreds of dollars on fancy clothes and actually attend weddings in person. Uh, I think the point is that uh, nothing will ever be the same again, right, post-COVID. Now, it's good to see the funny side of it, but it doesn't take long before you know that, that you feel that the overwhelming reaction is not going to be laughter, is it? For, for the majority of the world, for all of the world perhaps, the overwhelming feeling is going to be the opposite. It's going to be, well, grief, sorrow. We grieve when we feel like we've lost something. And we will grieve because we have lost so much. Now, for Jesus' disciples, after the first Friday, the first crucifixion, they also felt the same. There was grief. There was sorrow. They were grieving also because of their sense of loss, unimaginable loss. Now, we've read uh, John chapter 20, and we'll look at verses 11 to 18. It's a unique episode, really, and it's only in John's biography of Jesus. Almost certainly, it was drawn from a first-hand account, because it's so personal. It's, it's really intimate. There's something really beautiful about this account, isn't it? Because there's this picture of one woman and her grief. And we understand her grief because she, too, feels like, well, how can anything ever be the same ever again? Her grief, like ours, is dominated by unanswered questions. Because that's what happens when we grieve, isn't it? You have unanswered questions. And this account has some of these questions. Four in particular that I want to run through with you. The question of why. Secondly, the question of who. Thirdly, the question of where. And fourthly, the question of what. Who, sorry, why, who, where, and what. But you see, what this account does... John's biography of, of this event, uh, these questions get answered throughout John chapter 20. And, and when they get answered, what you see is something remarkable happens. Grief will turn into joy. Sorrow will turn into hope. Which means that these are going to be answers for us too. So this Easter, I want you to walk with Mary and see how our questions can be answered in the midst of of our own crisis. See, for us as well, grief can turn into joy. Sorrow can turn into hope. Let's pray before we get into the thick of the passage. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we transport ourselves 2,000 years to that early morning, Sunday morning, when Mary Magdalene saw the risen Jesus, the Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, make us understand and 
not only understand, but feel the rising hope that came with your resurrection. Especially speak to us in this particular time, in this crisis in our generation, in our moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me just give you the setting before we come to the the four main questions or four main points. Uh, It's early Sunday morning, chapter 20, verse 1. It's just before dawn, probably. Mary Magdalene, uh, she goes to Jesus' tombs. And as other accounts tell us, she goes bringing spices to anoint the dead body of Jesus. And as she gets there, the the stone is not there. The stone is removed. It's on the side, perhaps, or, or, or off the seal of the tomb. Now, now, she doesn't look inside at that point, but she immediately runs to tell Jesus' disciples, uh, two disciples in particular, Peter and John, uh, two of the inner circle of Jesus' friends. Because she's fearing that someone has come and, and stolen the body. Maybe grave robbers, maybe the authorities came and took it, who knows? Now, Peter and John then, uh, they, they race off to the tomb and, and John being John is a little bit faster. And Peter, and I know what this is like because my name is Peter too, we tend to be the slower ones in a running race. Now Peter and John get there. But one after the other, John first, Peter then, they go in. Nobody. They see nobody. Only Jesus' burial cloths, his linen. Then we, we hear from them no more. They leave. But Mary is still there. Mary remains at the tomb, convinced that the body of her teacher the body of her Lord, the body of her friend was taken. And so that's why we see her at the entrance of the tomb and she's weeping. And finally, perhaps through tears still streaming down her face, finally she does bend down to look inside the tomb. And what does she see? She sees two men dressed in white, seated across from each other, one at the head of where Jesus was laid, the other at the feet of where Jesus is laid. And then we get the first question in this story. Remember, we're looking at four questions. The first one is, of course, why? But it comes from the angels. They ask Mary in verse 13, why are you crying? Now she answers immediately. They've taken my Lord away, she says, and I don't know where they have put him. She doesn't know who they are. Mary is crying, of course, because she's grieving, right? She's, she's still shocked from the events of just two days ago, seeing Jesus suffer as he did, his execution, his crucifixion, the horrible, horrible death that is crucifixion. And now the one thing that she wanted to do for her master, her, for her friend, is to anoint his body with fragrant spices and oils to preserve it a little bit more. But now even that is taken away from her because the body isn't there. It must have felt like just a sucker punch to the guts, right? After all that's happened. And so we see that even as she gives her answer to the why question, well, actually, Mary obviously has her own why questions that need to be answered, right? Even though she knows why she's grieving, behind it is her own why. And and the, 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 the why is, why has all this happened? That's why she's grieving. Why has all this happened? she is grieving because she doesn't know the answer to that question of why. But it's not just her question, it's our question too, isn't it? I mean, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of loss, of fear, of uncertainty, in unemployment, in in sickness, in death, 
we ask too, why? Why are these things happening? Why, God, if you are good and if you are in control, why are we experiencing these things? We also want questions to why as well. But that's not answered right now in this story, so let's move on to the next question. Who? So after this encounter with the two angels, they no longer feature. Mary turns and instead in verse 14 sees or sees Jesus. Or perhaps the angels kind of motion to Mary, look behind you. So, so she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize it's Jesus. But then Jesus speaks and he asks the same initial question as the angels. Why are you crying? Now, you know when Jesus asks questions, right? It's not because he doesn't know the answer. When Jesus asks questions, this happens again and again in, in John's account, but also in other gospel accounts. He, he asks questions not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants us to lean in closer to him so that we might search for answers as we lean in closer to him. And so that's why he will follow up with the second question. Again, not because he doesn't know the answer, right? The second question is the who, and that's what we're focusing on. He says, who is it? Mary, that you are looking for. Of course, there's a bit of dramatic irony here, isn't there? I mean, the one she's looking for is right in front of her, and, and he's asking her who, but she doesn't recognize him at this point. She mistakes him for someone else. Verse 15, she thinks he's the gardener. She says, Sir, if, if you've taken him, please tell me where you've put him so that I can go get him. She's still grieving. She's still upset. She still feels that sucker punch of not being able to do something for her master after the events of two days ago. But then we see the turning point, of course, in the story. Jesus then speaks one word, and the one word changes everything. And of course, that one word is a name. He calls out to her by name. He says, Mary, Mary. And she's startled immediately. Her eyes are open. She recognizes him. Rabboni, teacher, it's you. See, all it took was Jesus calling her by name. Now, that's not a coincidence because in John chapter 10, the good shepherd passage, Jesus himself said the good shepherd calls his own sheep by what? The good shepherd calls his sheep by name and they recognize his voice. Here we've got the good shepherd and he calls her by name. It's such a beautiful, intimate picture. And then she recognizes his voice because she is one of his. I wonder if you've heard Jesus call your name. Not out loud, perhaps. When was the first time you heard him calling to you? Pete. Or whatever your name is. John. Robbo. Christine. Because when he calls you and you're one of his, it awakens something, doesn't it? It's beautiful. Okay, so here we begin to see more fully the answer to the question of who. Because Jesus was looking for who she thought Jesus was, okay? The Jesus as she knew him, a teacher, friend, Lord, Messiah. But actually, she was looking for a dead teacher, a dead friend, a crucified Lord an executed Messiah. She came to see his body. That's her who. But that's not who Jesus is, is he? Because he's alive. He, he's standing right in front of him. He's talking to her very much alive, which means that he is so much more than she could grasp at that time. 
So who is he? I mean, we know who he is, but who, who is the gospel writer, the biographer John wanting to reveal at this point of who Jesus is? What's the answer to that question of who he is? Now, we've got to lean in a bit closer into the account to get some clues. And there's lots of little clues, but I'll just give you the, the one that I like the most. Um, there's a puzzling element in this account. I don't know if you noticed. The, the, the element is, why are the angels even there? You know, if, um, if this was a Hollywood script, all right, what, what the, often happens is, is, is screenwriters write a script and then they have to cull lots and lots from the script. Um, and so you get rid of any extraneous, non-essential information that doesn't move the plot forward, that doesn't do anything. And it seems like the angels that Mary see at the tomb are like that. I mean, they ask a question, but the, Jesus will ask the same question later. It's not really needed. And they ask the question, Mary sees them, and they're not the feature, the central feature, it's Jesus. And in fact, after Mary sees them, they kind of disappear from the story. Uh, if you were a script writer, that is what you would cut out, wouldn't it? So why are they there? Why, why does John mention them? They don't really add anything, or do they? Well, if you look closely, you will realize that this pair of angels, remember, they're in the tomb, they're facing each other. One is at the head, one is at the foot of Jesus. That configuration is no accident. Are some of you already tweaking what this might be? An allusion to? A reference to? Well, let me tell you what it is. In the Old Testament, when you have two angels facing each other, that would have been familiar to Jews because that was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. You see, the Ark was the most holy of objects for the Jews. They contained the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. The ark was the physical representation of God's presence among his people. The ark was placed in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. The ark cover and its design, we're told in Exodus, specifically has two angels opposite each other, facing each other, wings touching. Now, we don't know if the angels in this tomb had wings, uh, probably not. It's a good chance that Mary didn't even know there were angels until afterwards. But we, we do see two angels in the tomb, though. And what's their position? One is at the head of Jesus, where he was laid. One is at the foot of where Jesus was laid. They're opposite each other. And so this is, I believe, a subtle reference, a subtle allusion, harking back to the Ark of the Covenant, which means that what John is saying is this tomb that housed Jesus' body was the Holy of Holies. This tomb that housed Jesus' body is, is like the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the very presence of God is. And so that is the who. Who is Jesus? Who is John revealing Jesus to be right there, even as his body is in there with the two angels? He is God himself. He's God himself. And that's why the Lord of life is alive, because the Lord of life cannot be contained by death, can he? And the Lord of life is, of course, going to be risen. He's alive. And that's the who that Mary needed to know that he, she was now talking to. She was talking to God. Because once you understand who Jesus is, well, everything changes. Everything changes. More of that later. Let's, let's go to the next question, the where question. Mary, of course, was... Mary was wondering where, I mean, where is the body of Jesus? She asks Jesus before she recognizes, where have you taken him? But then after she does recognize him, 
Look at verse 17. Another curious little bit that upon first reading, you're like, oh, what's going on? Scratching our heads. Jesus tells her, Mary, don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. That's a strange. Why? Why? What's that about? Of course, we can imagine Mary, right, in her amazement, in her joy. She, she's grabbing onto Jesus, perhaps even in some sort of warm embrace. And, and you can understand why, right? He, he's alive, Jesus. I thought he was gone, but now he's back. Jesus, I will never let you go again. Like, that's what you feel like when you haven't seen someone for so long or, or someone, as far as you know, is gone, but now is back. Right? I'll never let you go again. And it's to that that Jesus says, you've got to let me go. Don't keep holding on to me, Mary. Now, why does he say that? Well, verse 17, he explains, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, to God the Father. It's a bit strange. What's that about? See, we, we want to understand here, don't we? The, the significance of Jesus is ascension. Ascension is this going back up to heaven. To sit at the Father's right hand. What's that? Why is that so important? Um, you, Easter, we usually just think of the resurrection. But right now, we have to grapple with the idea of the ascension of Jesus and understand why that's important. So why is it important? Well, let me cut a long story short. You read the Bible, the New Testament, you find out that Jesus' ascension is important because it's this. The ascension of Jesus is His taking up His rightful place as the Lord and King of the universe. That's the idea of going up to heaven, right? Heaven, the control room of the universe, sitting at the Father's right hand, the most honored place of authority, right? That's what the ascension means. It's Jesus taking up his rule and lordship over all the, of the whole universe. Now, that is the answer to where. That's where the risen Jesus is going. And that's something that Mary had failed to understand at that point. Remember, first she wanted to know where his dead body was. That was a misunderstanding, right? Because his dead body wasn't going to be there because he's alive. Second misunderstanding, if she sees him alive, well, that's great, but she now wants to keep him where he is now, by her side, never let him go. And that's also a misunderstanding of the where because Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not where I'll remain. I need to go back to heaven to now take up my rule, my throne at the Father's right hand. That's where I'm supposed to be now that I've risen. And so this Easter, we actually not just need to grapple with the resurrection, we need to grapple with the ascension of Jesus, of why it's as important, really, as the resurrection for Mary and for us today. I'll tell you why. Let's just, if Jesus did not ascend, okay? Hypothetically speaking, if he didn't go back up to heaven, if he just remained, do you know what? it would mean that he isn't the ruler of this broken and hurting world because the ascension is his ascending to rule. If that didn't happen, he's not the ruler. He's not the one given all authority to make everything right again. He's not going to be able to work all things for the good of those who love him, even in the midst of panic and crisis and pandemic and death and suffering and loss. The ascension is key. To his rule. But secondly, also, if Jesus did not ascend, then guess what? He can't be present with all of his people everywhere across all of time. Do you remember Jesus says in John chapter 16, just a few weeks ago, he says, it is for your good that I go to the Father, that I'm going back to the Father. Because if I go, I will send who? 
I'll send the Holy Spirit so that through Him I can be with all of you everywhere all the time. Without Him ascending, His presence and His power through the Holy Spirit will not be poured out on His people. And so if you see that, now you understand why the ascension of Jesus, the the, the ascension of the resurrected Jesus, is something that we so desperately need to grasp in our particular time, in our particular moment, right? You see, because Jesus is ascended, we have hope even in this crisis, yeah? Because we know that He rules the world, even if it seems like sometimes it's spinning out of control. That even right now, because Jesus is on His throne in heaven, He is, what's He doing? He's saving people. He's growing His not yet visible kingdom. He is enacting a rescue plan through His body. That's us, the church. And because He's ascended, we have God, the Holy Spirit, poured out so that He is with us, in us, guiding us, speaking to us, empowering us, making us more like Jesus. And then in the book of Hebrews, which we don't have time to look at, because Jesus is ascended, we know that our prayers reach the very ears of God the Father Himself. You got that? Because Jesus is at the Father's right hand, and Hebrews says He is presently interceding for us. In other words, He's praying for us. What a great idea. Remember a couple of weeks ago, John chapter 17, Jesus prays for His followers back then as well as now. Well, He didn't just pray once. Hebrews says, because He is at God the Father's right hand, He is right now praying for you, praying for me, praying for our world all the time. And His prayers are effective And our prayers are effective because He takes our prayers and brings them to the Father's ears. All of that because of the ascension. And that's why you've got this lovely line in the second half of verse 17, right? Jesus says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Because Jesus is ascending, He can take all of His people all the way to heaven with Him. And so His Father becomes our Father. His God becomes our God. All of this happens because the resurrected Jesus goes and ascends. And so we've looked at three questions so far. The why, the who, the where, finally the what. It's common when faced with massive change, isn't it, to ask, what do I do now? What do I do now that nothing's ever going to be the same? What do I even do? And maybe that's what you're asking. On the other side of this pandemic, God willing, sooner rather than later, but whenever that is, when the dust finally settles, perhaps millions will have died and world economies will have all but collapsed. That's a real possibility. And maybe we're asking, I know I'm asking, what do we do then? What do I do then? And that's what Mary and the other disciples of Jesus would have been asking when they witnessed their Lord and Master crucified on the first Good Friday. What do we do now? But you see, now that Jesus is risen, everything has changed. When He is alive, and because He is alive, and He is ascending, He is going up to take up His throne and rule, then now we all have, they all had, and we all have now a definite answer to the what, don't we? The what do we do now question. And you see that in verses 17 and 18. Jesus tells Mary to go and take the good news and share it. Uh, for her then, right then and there, is to share it with Jesus' other disciples. And we'll see her do that in the rest of the chapter. But for Jesus' disciples, once He has ascended, we see in the, the book of Acts, we're to share it with, with who? The world. We're to share that with the world. That's the what. 
Because once you understand the why, the who, and the where, the what follows naturally. So quick recap. The why. Why did Jesus die? Why was his body not in the tomb? Well, we didn't look at the answer back then, but we know now, don't we? We know why. Because it was all part of God's plan to undo all that has been wrong in the world due to human rebellion and sin. Because Jesus on the first Good Friday would die in the place of sinners. He would die for our sin. But he would also rise again on Easter Sunday. And in this, death itself would be undone. That's why he had to die. That's why the tomb was empty. And remember, this shows us the who. The who Jesus is question. He's not just another failed Messiah crucified in the hands of Rome. No, he is God himself, the Lord of life. The one entombed could never be held in the tomb, of course. And which means that those who are his, those who follow him, we never have to fear because of who he is. And where is he? Well, we looked just then that Jesus is risen, but he's also now in heaven, ascended at God's right hand, ruling and reigning. And even as we speak, he is bending world history towards his plan to save and he will one day make all things new. That's where he is. And so there's only one answer to the what question, isn't there? I mean, what are we as his followers to do now? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, are we to weep and grieve as if there is no hope? Are we to despair of the world and give up and do nothing? Or are we to just become selfish and look out for us and our own, like so many people want to now? Or are we to strive with our own efforts in order that we might try our best to fix all that's wrong, as noble as it is? Well, the answer is, of course, no. No, we are to, what are we to do? We are to point people to Jesus, the risen, reigning Jesus. We need to tell people, don't we? through our words, as well as through our actions and our lives, that there is one who rules in the midst of a pandemic. That there is one who is Lord over life and over death. That there is one who can secure our eternities no matter what happens in the here and now. And there is one who is alive. Yes, he is alive. And therefore he is present and he is active. And he is active in the lives of his people and through us to change and to heal and to transform this world. So I wonder, friends, do you know him? Do you know him? Because if you don't know him personally, if you don't recognize his voice calling you, then today maybe he's doing that and you can come to know him. What a great thing. What an amazing story would be if of all Easter Sundays, this is the time where you've come to know him. You can. And we'd love to help you do that. Please connect with us. Please connect with us. And there are ways you can do that um, with, with the live streaming uh, click of a button. Just one of these places on the screen. I'm not sure where it's going to be. Connect with us. And if you do know him, well, I have a simple question. Is that this Easter, who is it that you know who doesn't know him? And how is it that you can share the good news with them? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are alive, risen, ascended, 
reigning and that you are with us by your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would pour out your Spirit generously on both people who don't know you, that they may come to know you, and people who do know you, that we might live in hope, we might speak and act with hope and tell people about the risen, reigning Lord. So Father, through your Son, please continue to work this Easter and in days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.